Hey everyone, you're listening to Dialogos, a Harker Philosophy Club podcast. I'm Akshay. I'm Sophia. And I'm Quentin. And today we'll be talking about the philosophy of race, its history, and how it applies to the present day. There's going to be a, a lot in this one, so it may go a little longer, but it's really going to have a lot of detail and we think it'll be great. We're also going to follow up with a uh, podcast about civil disobedience, protest, and violence in politics. Just kind of in response to current events. So first we want to talk about philosophy's racially fraught history. Uh, We want to acknowledge that some of the major philosophers in the Western canon had a large part in promoting scientific racism. First, there's Kant, who, if you've studied philosophy, you know very well, he founded deontology and all that, but he actually was not renowned as a philosopher in his day. He was renowned as an anthropologist. And he unfortunately had a tendency to promote racial stereotypes. He put down philosophers um, in Asia and Africa. He was really not great. He promoted a lot of Western racism, justified slavery, all that. So that's something that kind of philosophy as a discipline has had to wrestle with. There are other Enlightenment philosophers like Hume who kind of also were complicit in this. And again, as a discipline, we've kind of had to wrestle with this. But Luckily, philosophy has also been a tool to fight racism throughout the years. Just to add a small thing to the Kant stuff, uh, not going to get super deep into this, but you may remember like Kant's general belief, like, oh, people are equal or whatever. A lot of the way that Kant kind of got around that, so to speak, in his own philosophy was by treating uh, people of color, especially uh, Asian and Black folk, as non-humans, which then kind of bypassed his own general beliefs in egalitarianism uh, in just like horrifically racist ways. Um, so there was also kind of a utilitarian response to this to some degree. In general, the utilitarians had more progressive views relatively. They generally believed in like the, uh, like legal rights of like women and black folk. Um, for example, like one of the big utilitarians, Jeremy Bentham was a abolitionist, but they also were not free of their own racial biases. They mostly understood that although these, although like black folk, uh, were in fact, uh, people worthy of uh, like rights and stuff, they still thought of them as inferior. And so there's still definitely that bias against them uh, embedded in some of their early philosophy. Something also that um, kind of was problematic about the Enlightenment is a lot of it rested upon erasing other cultures, philosophical traditions. For example, Africa had an Enlightenment itself in the 1200s. There was a rich culture of Ethiopian philosophy, including a guy named Zara Yacob. I encourage you Ever, all you listeners to look him up afterwards. Um, but Western philosophy's kind of canon um, relied on erasing a lot of that and not acknowledging that in order to prop itself up. And all of this was happening during kind of the Enlightenment. So that was the late 18th century, early 19th century. And during this sort of time period, there was a lot going on across the Atlantic as well. Um, Obviously, the most significant uh, in the 1860s was the Civil War. But what led up to that was this really interesting um, interplay of different philosophies. Most listeners are probably familiar with abolitionism, the idea that slavery should be totally abolished. Um, and that was, a, that was a viewpoint, but it wasn't the main viewpoint in the, uh, in the lead up to the Civil War, which is interesting to think about. Most peop- there were a lot of people who were anti-slavery, but it was along different degrade- different. Uh, gradations. So 
there were the abolitionists who were the smallest contingent and believed that slavery was morally wrong. But there were a lot of other uh, people too. The majority of people who were anti-slavery in the North were free labor advocates. So they believed that slave labor harmed labor markets uh, and undermined white people like white people being able to work. And so they opposed its extension into uh, the territories or wanted it to go away. Um, but they weren't anti-racist. And that's sort of an important distinction. Lincoln himself kind of rose up as a free labor advocate and only later really transitioned to being an abolitionist. And so there's a lot of different history here and a lot of different nuance. And then you also have the back to Africa movement, stuff like that. Yeah, a lot of these... Um abolitionist movements were also tied to geopolitics in a way um not like distinct from rice but somewhat separate from that so they're uh one of the big things you'll hear about lincoln is that uh when he was initially deciding what stance he was going to take he just ultimately decided on the one that he thought had a better chance of keeping the united states unified and so geopolitically powerful so in a lot of ways these stances uh can't be divorced from the geopolitics that surrounded them and i think that like true abolition so to speak was definitely more of a fringe view. And responses to race themselves, like even the response to race was influenced by geography. You had the Back to Africa movement led by places like the American Colonization Society uh, that sought to set up um, uh, places in Africa for Black people to move back. Um, obviously, this like did not happen in like a mass form, but there were quite a few people that did move away. Um, the current uh, African country of Liberia uh, kind of coming from liberty is actually kind of that state that was set up by the American Colonization Society. Yeah, um, it's worth noting that the that the uh, American Colonization Society, which was this group founded by a bunch of white people who wanted to solve slavery by colonize, recolonizing Africa, the vast majority of, uh, of black folk in the United States were highly, highly opposed to this. This is definitely a fringe view as viewed as like a uh, kind of like a niche uh, quote unquote solution to slavery and one that a lot of uh, writers have now historically recognized as being kind of more pro-slavery than they were initially onto because it would uh, kind of still perpetuate the ability for slavery to exist in the continental states while simply kind of offsetting, so to speak, some of the problem um, to Africa, which had its like own problems at the time. And there's obviously the problem that you're, that they, that the formation of Liberia had to displace a bunch of, uh, indigenous folk, and they're still uh, not uh, in a not awesome situation there today in relation to that. Kind of to highlight some of the issues and philosophy of race, we wanted to talk about the divide between two thinkers, Booker T. Washington and W.E. D. Du Bois, um, and kind of their divides, because they were two philosophers who existed at the time of abolition. They were two Black philosophers. They were wondering what's the best next move for their people after they've been freed? There's Booker T. Washington, who kind of wanted to stay a little bit more mellow, who wanted to go a little bit slower. He was kind of uh, akin to someone who wanted to take moderate steps towards solving the problem of racism. And there was W.E.B. Du Bois, who was more into asserting one's humanness to rushing ahead with solutions and all of that. He directly responded to Kant's like idea that black people had no humanity in asserting his own humanity. He's a very smart guy. 
And just to flesh out some of their respective philosophies a little more, uh, Booker T. Washington kind of espoused a philosophy relating to accommodationism. Um, This can be reflected in his famous speech called the Atlanta Compromise, where he kind of used the metaphor of a hand um, to explain the idea that he was going for, which is black and white people would be separate like the fingers, but united like the hand and working to build stuff. And so the idea was that black people would only look to sort of economic empowerment. So they would, quote unquote, keep their heads heads down and work to gain the respect of white people. And then later on would use that to gain political rights. But he himself thought that they shouldn't immediately go looking for social equality or political rights. And that's something that W.E.B. Du Bois strongly disagreed with. Uh, he thought that um, black people needed to assert themselves in looking for civil rights and equality. Uh, he founded the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the N- NAACP. Um, and he also um, argued that there needed to be a talented tenth of black people who would uh, be the top 10% of black people, uh, be very educated and try and lift up the race as a whole. Um, and he himself embodied that. He went to, I think he was the first black PhD from Harvard, um, something like that. He was a very, very smart man. Just adding on to that, kind of a big, I'm not sure if uh, Du Bois founded it, but he was a big proponent of American pragmatism, which is the tradition of kind of looking at one's experiences and philosophizing off of how things are in daily life. So he wrote essays about kind of his interactions with white supremacists and analyzed and dissected their views and then philosophically kind of told us what the next step was. It's very based on kind of empirics and facts and stuff, his philosophy. And so starting here to some degree, not necessarily starting, but kind of becoming prominent in the public view, uh, was a sort of ideological split instead of debates that continues on to this day between two sets of, of not necessarily opposing, but somewhat contradictory ideas on the best ways to improve the status of black folk in America, which is the kind of uh, the set of the group of people who think that reforms or changes should come incrementally and the group of people who think that more radical urgent changes needed. And obvi- I think in general, this intellectual lineage of both groups has moved significantly towards the left to the point to where both Booker and Du Bois's views sound a little bit conservative now. But it's worth noting that this kind of tradition of intellectual disagreement has been continuing on to this day. And just as much as they have been conservative, they were conservative in being limited by the options during their time, uh, they've also contributed really interesting philosophy-related analytical viewpoints to analyze uh, racism. So W.E.B. Du Bois in particular um, wrote about a couple of things. Um, he wrote about this concept of double consciousness, which is that uh, Black people kind of inhabit uh, two con- a, a split in consciousness, both within their Blackness, but also um, in interacting with white society and in facing the kind of oppression that is put on them by white society. Uh, and sort of accompanying regimes of racial terror that were especially prominent in the South. Um, he also had this concept of the wages of whiteness, which were which was pretty influential. The idea that 
there is like a psychological um, benefit given by whiteness that white people can enjoy regardless of their economic status that helps entrench racial hierarchies. And I think this has contributed to ideas of like white privilege that we continue to discuss today. So I also kind of want to use that as a nice flowing point into kind of um, black phenomenology and some things that go along with that. You might hear the term um, in academia or on the streets that blackness is ontological. Um, and really what that means is it just has an effect on one's being. Kind of the arguments made by prominent um, ontologists such as, you know, Gordon, we have that blackness affects being in a way because going off of the double consciousness, you don't you don't just exist as a person. You're aware of your place in society because other people make you aware of it. Like the, despite how we're all human on the inside, usually black people will have certain experiences of people telling them about their blackness or it being made known to them via how they are treated differently from their white counterparts. A lot of people call blackness as like a lack, as it is, you know, something for supposedly the white racist to um, kind of show their humanity against, to, to kind of prop up, see how human I am and see how human you're not. Um, and that's kind of the way that phenomenologists posit that racism is continued and why it seems to be so, so popular in the human psyche. Yeah. And so the stuff that Sophia just talked about, we'll bring up a little bit later when we discuss the uh, modern tradition of race and critical theory. But um, before we do that, we should probably discuss briefly the civil rights movement, the 60s, uh, Malcolm X versus Martin Luther King Jr. Um, obviously, that kind of uh, uh, lineage between kind of moderate reformists and more radical reformists continues here. Martin Luther King Jr. was obviously a, uh, a highly educated individual who sought uh, legal recognition for black folk in a relatively peaceful and non-radical way, whereas Malcolm X, at least in his early career, uh, was uh, thought that like armed uh, uprisings and violent protests were a more effective political strategy. He later like changed his mind and like became a little more moderate, sold out, so to speak. But they only ever met personally a couple times, but certainly the broader questions that they posed to society of the best ways to uh, reform society for Black folk uh, made a huge impact on the civil rights movement in general and how those uh, progressed and how eventually some legal reforms did come for Black folk. I would say that it's interesting how, I think when we discuss Martin Luther King, there's a tendency to tamp down on his radicalism a bit um, in that uh, we kind of forget that he, he was kind of radical. He was radical for his time. He was disliked by a lot of people. Um, and it's only afterwards that he's really been lionized in the American spirit. It's also interesting how in his career, as he got older, he got more radical, um, sort of the opposite of uh, Malcolm X's uh, Quentin mentioned, where, uh, where MLK started to talk about uh, the Vietnam War, um, advocating for economic redistribution, uh, and more radical ideas that weren't explicitly related to race, but also affected why other wide swaths of society. Um, and I think that gets left out of the conversation largely. There's interesting talk about the reason why Martin Luther King 
or the image of Martin Luther King being propped up is to like teach people to be good, peaceful advocates or whatever, but we can discuss that more um, on our next podcast, kind of why he is so lionized and why people like him so much. But I also kind of want to turn back to some interesting, just a few kind of interesting positions that both Malcolm X and um, Martin Luther King hold. First of all, it is really interesting to note that Martin Luther King, very very influenced by his faith. A lot of the ways he was going about um, about advocating morally were more tied to theology than philosophy. Um, it is common knowledge that the Bible has been used by both sides of the abolition abolitionists and the people who want to prop up slavery. But Martin Luther did a really great job of kind of using people's faith to make moral argument. Um, Malcolm X was a little bit more interested in asserting one's humanity, although he also used his faith faith. A, a little bit, obviously, with the whole nation of Islam thing. But I just wanted to highlight that, that Martin Luther really knew how to use theology to, like, make a moral argument, which not a lot of people do. Yeah, he was, I think people somewhat forget that MLK's kind of, like, primary occupation, so to speak, was, like, as a pastor and as a theologian. He had, like, a PhD in theology from uh, BU. He was, like, very involved in that in that kind of religious tradition. And it certainly factored into a lot of his uh, works, writings, the ways that he justified his philosophies. And I think that certainly applies to Malcolm X as well. So another person that was influenced, at least at the start by his religious background was James Baldwin. A very, very good speaker and thinker that I highly recommend you read um, either the fire next time or notes of a native son. Um, very smart person. Um, he was originally a preacher and you can kind of hear it in the way he talks, but, um, he, he lived a lot longer than both Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, uh, into the eighties, I believe. And in that way, um, he provided more of a extended view from the civil rights to what we might consider closer to the modern day. Uh, and in that respect, he, he came up with a lot of interesting viewpoints um, to explain both a, a more violent re- response to racism that happened after the civil rights movement and kind of the mixing of um, economic hardship with racism that really um, was cemented uh, as the years moved on. So I think in, in that respect, uh, and we'll link this in the bio, um, James Baldwin really had some interesting viewpoints that still apply today. And it's worth looking at his um, scholarship uh, on your own time as well. Oh, yeah, I think with that, we can kind of transition a little bit into the discussion of modern day philosophies of race and everything. The first thing that we have on our agenda is the is questions of abolition versus reform of police and prison and uh, more broadly, like governmental institutions of power. Uh, brief introduction, abolitionists and all of these views think that uh, the institutions of prison, institutions of police, institutions of the government, etc., uh, are terminally unredeemable, uh, will always be posited and used against black folk and other minorities, and so should be completely broken down and replaced with alternative institutions, which we'll talk about in a second, versus reformists who think that the institutions, although, ha- although flawed, uh, are for whatever reason fundamentally necessary to keep. And so advocate for more limited, usually legal remedies through kind of traditional democratic channels. I think that 
uh, the current debate is best reflected by two different platforms that have arisen. So uh, if you're on social media, you might have seen both 8 Can't Wait and 8 to Abolition. So I think 8 Can't Wait came up first where um, it was this website with like uh, a list of eight different reforms that could be taken by the police. Um, I think it was like ban excessive use of force, require police officers to intervene against other police officers, stuff like that, um, that were smaller but still pretty important reforms that could be taken to reduce the amount of racial violence and police brutality that occurred. Um, and there was a backlash against this because uh, people felt that it didn't go far enough or that it was using up the uh, importance of the moment to advocate for things that are too limited. And so there is a response with Eight to Abolition, um, which is another website that calls uh, for far, far more sweeping uh, responses like full demilitarization, um, cutting or completely defunding police budgets, uh, and really uh, reinvesting those into social, into social services. So uh, I think if you want to look into those for a modern uh, detailed stance, that would be uh, pretty interesting. So some of you may be wondering, well, I hope you're not wondering this, but some of you may be wondering, hey, what's wrong with the police? Maybe they're not such a racist institution. Well, so I think we first have to go um, into a little bit of backstory about what the police were. Um, the first kind of semblance of federal police were task force task forces designed to get back runaway slaves. They're, they're never, their purpose never was to, you know, protect people or whatever. It was to get back the runaway slaves. So if, that's kind of where the institution comes from. And that's what a lot of the, why a lot of the abolitionists believe that it should go away is because if an institution has its grounds in racism, that it was built from racism, these people argue that it can never be divorced from these beginnings. It can never be separated from its racist foundations. And therefore it's better to completely get rid of it and rebuild it versus the reform. People think that it is able to be divorced from and that institutions can grow and change. Yeah. And so some of these abolition people, uh, there's obviously a question of how do we enforce like local security without police? Because I feel like apart from like some very fringe anarchists, no one thinks that we should have absolutely no basis for under, for preserving law and general order in society. Uh, so a lot of abolitionists just do not uh, have any f view of alternatives and like, you should probably just ignore them. I, most people though advocate, they've kind of taken ideas from like, uh, from like class conscious leftists and Marxists and whatever about like localized uh, police forces or like localized security forces that are based on community control and not just community oversight so like a big example is a bunch of uh various anarchist organizations around the world like the uh like the zapatistas in mexico they essentially have like a rotating police guard where they take volunteers and then like the volunteers will police for a little bit and they go through like way more training than standard american police forces do so there's kind of a debate around whether or not that would be effective especially in a place like the states where a lot of these volunteer police would probably end up being like white racists who you would never want to police people in the first place and so then the reformists on the other side will say that uh, like, like increased vetting, increased training, et cetera, are a more um, efficient and more likely pathway to resolving forms of police violence.
With the defund the police movement, there's no really centralized leader. And I think that's something that people like, uh, that there's the ability to have a conversation, not just one centralized viewpoint. Um, but in terms of what people think should replace the police, I do think that uh, there is some consensus that it should be social services. Um, and so not just things like volunteer police, but also um, like, for example, we have the police uh, who have to respond to like mental health issues, the homeless, um, dealing with drugs, et cetera. And so people think that that's really overstretching a system that shouldn't be there. And so what they advocate for is not just having volunteer police, but approaching those with uh, social services, things that, that are that are more healing uh, in a certain sense that would resolve the, the roots of crime in a way that policing maybe addresses the effects. Yeah, I forgot to mention this, but I, uh, and that's like definitely my bad, but a lot of the, a lot of the like defund the police, uh, police abolitionist movements are definitely, they view the alternatives as being uh, varied in terms of like, uh, I like really like this example. We don't call the police when there's a fire because we have a fire department for that. They have specialized roles. A lot of these social, these like leftist alternatives involve the creation of new departments for dealing with specific issues. So for example, uh, like you wouldn't call the police or you wouldn't call the police to deal with like your house being broken in and having stuff stolen. You'd call like some sort of different thing. And the people who come would be prepared specifically to deal with that. They wouldn't be like armed and whatever. Whereas really only like the police and like other security units, like the like SWAT teams or whatever would only exist for uh, instances where like immediate force is required, which would obviously significantly decrease kind of policing of areas because the vast majority of government, uh, workers are going around wouldn't just be like planes clothes police with the uh, authority to use force but would be uh social social workers who are designated to perform certain roles obviously with any movement there are criticisms um and it's no different for the defund defund the police movement i think there are both criticisms on the right and the left um people say that the police are necessary in some form that keeping them is important that there are violent people um, and you have to respond to like uh, robbers and rapes and stuff like that. Um, I think there are also criticisms that defunding the police would be counterproductive. Um, so, for example, in like uh, Ferguson, what was happening was that like white police officers were really enforce over enforcing things like fines um, and like monetary punishments on black communities. Um, so things like speeding, jaywalking, etc. Um, in order to raise revenue for their police department. And so some people people have said that that would kind of be the result if we were to keep the police, but like just try and cut funding, et cetera. Um, and then there are other people that say that um, maybe defunding the police is the wrong issue, but it, but what might be required is like a more like worker focused program or something working through legal reforms, et cetera. Obviously there's like a lot of divergence um, but I think those are some of the criticisms. Um, I think it's now time to talk about kind of allyship um, and sort of what what we as people on social media have personally personally observed and kind of what what is productive, what isn't all that. Basically, um, you've seen a lot of people demonstrating support for the Black Lives Movement through posts. Uh, which is great, but in some circles, there's become a social expectation that if you do not do X, then you may get harassed. And we just want to talk kind of about that and about how a p- one might not have to change their profile picture to 
Black Lives Matter logo in order to be socially involved. Yeah, so just like a little bit of context on the terms here, you'll probably hear something called virtue signaling used a lot. It's a term that was invented by American conserv American conservatives, I think, to uh, essentially criticize liberals for behaving in liberal in liberal actions like supporting Black Lives Matter or whatever else, um, just as a far as just as a way to like show their friends that they were in on the movement, so to speak, and that any form of uh, positive uh, socially progressive action is just a like way to make more friends, which is. Uh, kind of like an abhorrent viewpoint, but there is like a little bit of applicability in cases where people do feel socially pressured into um, supporting uh, certain progressive movements. And there's also kind of a question of whether or not that form of support or solidarity is really beneficial. I think it's relatively uncontroversial that it's better to like donate money to BLM or to BL relief organizations than to do kind of more visual superficial actions, like uh, showing your support with a black square on Instagram. Uh, I, I don't think that either is like, I don't think that showing solidarity is actively harmful, but I think a lot of people would criticize showing solidarity as a way to kind of alleviate your responsibility to participate in more concrete ways. Yeah, if you're looking for more resources on this, um, I think the phrase optical allyship has been used. Um, optical just to refer to it just being something as an, that's an appearance for you, but not going any deeper. And Instead, trying to make your support, even if it does go through things like putting uh, resources in your Instagram story or uh, like posting a black square, going beyond that to uh, support the protests either um, with your own body, right, actually protesting or uh, donating. Unless someone wants to say something about that, I think we can kind of finish up with a discussion of some of the modern philosophical canon of race. Awesome. So um, I kind of briefly wanted to go over the the current farthest left viewpoints that kind of exist in mostly in academia? So critical race theory uh, began to really show up in academia, I think around the 1980s, 1990s. Um, it was, I think some of the big proponents are people like Richard Delgado, uh, I think Henry Louis Gates Jr. as well. Um, but basically they analyzed race using some of the tools of critical theory that had been used by um, people in the academy from, I think, especially in the 1960s from France, et cetera, um, and in sort of Marxist literature. And this was basically uh, analyzing race as a, not, not just as uh, individual animus, but rather as a broad structure that influenced not only how people engage with each other, like material relationships. So for, for example, things like redlining that, uh, that, segregate black people from certain housing areas, um, but also influencing our philosophy or the way we think. Um, this would be uh, influencing what people would call epistemology. So how white philosophy could be exclus exclusionary towards black people. And so critical race theory really kind of shifted the way that the academy approached race. Um, and uh, it's continued on to the modern day as people have gone more different directions, whether it's applying critical race theory to uh, pursue policy reforms or going a more pessimistic route. Yeah, I think that I I like to think of this as really the time that people have started calling out Kant and other really influential philosophers for some of their bad actions that we mentioned earlier in in our podcast and how white philosophy has survived um, preying on like erasing other cultures and whatnot. Um, and kind of analyzing how that leads to certain viewpoints 
um, there have been some criti great criticisms of idealism that have come out of critical race theory. There have been some great criticisms of questions about what it means to be human and whose lives matter in the social sphere, which I think is pretty interesting. And obviously, you've you've heard a lot about a, a lot of discourse about whose lives matter lately. So it's an important thing to think about. Kind of to wrap this part up, the most, the farthest left position, so to speak, I think would be the Afro-pessimists. Uh, this is a kind of intellectual position started by this person named Frank Wilderson, uh, mostly in his seminal work, Red, White, and Black, which came out in, I want to say, 2008 or 2010. Um, essentially, he posits a theory of race that is based around the idea that the entire structure of the United States as an uh, organization and as a society uh, is based on uh, the blackness, which is he kind of describes as like the antithesis to whiteness or the creation of black folk as fungible after the Middle Passage. He thinks that civil society is built upon the subjugation of blackness. And so uh, some of that ontology stuff that we talked about earlier and the relationship to Fanon, who we kind of drew his work off of, uh, used it to form a theory of pessimism, which said that any form of work or legal reform within the structure of the state itself is inherently unethical. And as a result of that, he called for uh, the call of the end, or he called for like the end of the world via um, a revolution from black folk. He wasn't super specific in exactly what this meant, but I think this kind of represents just the 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 kind of logical extreme of that abolitionist tradition that we talked about, where not only abolishing prisons or police uh, were necessary, but abolishing the entire structure that led to the formation of the country had to go. And a lot of, and we bring this up because uh, Afro-pessimist work is starting to have, I think, a greater and greater influence in the modern social sphere. Some of the BLM protesters and the rhetoric that they're using, the kind of ideology that they're supporting through their, um, the ways that they're supporting their actions are, becoming generally more and more uh, Afro-pessimistic in nature, I think, to a, to a significant degree. But at least for now, uh, Afro-pessimism is still a mostly uh, French philosophy that you won't see discussed a lot. I think that I'd actually disagree slightly on the uh, how fringe it is. I think it's super, even though we don't often use the name Afro-pessimism, you can definitely see it on protest signs. If you go to protests, you see people holding around cardboard signs saying America was built on the back of blacks. You see people holding up signs like, look at these slave masters on the dollar bills, stuff like that. You see people kind of calling for like downfall of the U.S. government, which is really interesting. But it's kind of interesting to see how these grand ideas that we usually think are condemned or trapped in the ivory tower flow down to down below, um, usually using kind of nicer, you know, one or two syllable as opposed to six syllable words, but um, kind of the ideas are still there. I actually don't think that those are reflections of Afro-pessimism per se. Like, I, they are certainly historical analyses, um, and I don't think it's controversial to say that um, a large portion of American society was built using slave labor. Like, that's just historical fact. Um, and so I think that Afro-pessimism is unique in it describing an ontological element to Blackness and that reform will never be successful. Uh, I think that the threads you isolated are either historical criticism of the United States, but still amenable to certain reforms. 
it, they just call for a sort of intellectual reckoning with that history, uh, which is still more reasonable than I think what Afro-pessimism calls for. Uh, and moreover, the calls to dismantle the government, I think are more reflective of an anarchist tradition than necessarily an Afro-pessimist one. So I, I do think that unless that Afro-pessimism is really reliant on that academic nature, so it's it's a little harder to integrate. Yeah, I definitely agree with that to a great point. I think that a lot of, that there's kind of a convergent evolution in these mindsets in which uh, Wilderson based a lot of his criticisms on historical analyses. A lot of the protesters are doing the same. But I do think some of his uh, foundational work in kind of the questions of blackness and being, the ontology stuff that we talked about earlier, which is self is taken from Heidegger, is showing up in uh, more mainstream uh, academia and works. For example, you'll see the author uh Ta-Nehisi Coates. Coates. Say that again? Ta-Nehisi Coates. He's kind of an Afro-pessimist, but... Yeah, Ta-Nehisi Coates. He likes he, reparations. Yeah, yeah, I think he's definitely a more middle ground than most, but uh, his works... There's this great uh, article about his... Like a letter, an open letter that he wrote to his son, which uh, was, it was a fundamentally an interrogation and an attempt at explanation of the relationship between blackness and being that I think draws upon that Afro-pessimist lineage to a great degree. And I would suspect that we'll only see Afro-pessimism and its other derivatives growing more and more popular in the future. But yeah, I I agree with your correction. I think that it's definitely more Afro-pessimism. I also kind of got a little sidetracked. I meant to bring up that critical race theory. It's, it is a little bit more uh, on the critical race theory side. Um, well, I guess Afro-pessimism is a form of critical race theory, but uh, whatever. I just wanted to mention that kind of that idealism or that historical analysis came down uh, through Marx from Hegel. And I think that's important to kind of reckon these um, historical analyses and kind of acknowledge that this wasn't always kind of a popular thing to do. A lot of people in the 1800s and 1900s analyzed race just in the present day without kind of looking back at the historical roots and attempting to deconstruct um, institutions that racism was founded on. Both Washington was looking at just the economic sphere and Du Bois was looking at just the political sphere. But when this critical race theory happened, you see kind of the interlay between uh, the intersectionality that you see in today's um, dialogues about race. But yes, let's talk about Marx, I guess now. So yeah, kind of the last thing that we want to talk about before we moved on to a different section is um, the influence of class theories, especially Marxism and its uh, future derivatives on race theory. Uh, ordinarily, we would bring this up, but uh, I think it's had like a really pretty significant impact on a lot of the critical race theory stuff we talked about earlier. Obviously, Mar- uh, there's a fundamental difference between the two and how they understand the ordering of society and the causes of structural racism. The critical race theorists will claim that there is usually some sort of uh, inherent quality or a libidinal, which is just refers to like a psychological uh, drive towards racism, which structures the societies that we exist in. Whereas obviously Marxism's class analysis says that class determines race. And there's a lot of uh, good kind of historical examples that the Marxists will point to. Uh, For example, the transatlantic slave trade was... Marxists will say was primarily motivated by cost. It was the most efficient, effective uh, source of labor that they could have used in the new world was to use um, use African slaves, which then led to the colonial powers doing that. And I think a lot of Marxists and the Marxist tradition has brought this into 
the modern age. Uh, Jody Dean is kind of the, I think, the most publicly recognizable version of this. Saval Zizek also writes about this, uh, but you shouldn't read him. Uh, where they say that the history of race in America and the ways that we can solve race can't be divorced from understanding it through a, through a lens of class first, because they believe that class kind of determined uh, how race is understood. And so a lot of the time they'll advocate for more broad class movements in favor of specific race movements. So for example, a hardcore Marxist may criticize Black Lives Matter as an organization that because it is founded on race will ultimately fail in its struggle to alleviate class differences and that instead it's better to create like broad widespread unions or support some sort of Marxist overthrow of the government and that would solve better. And so there's definitely a uh, rich back and forth between those two that you should look into if you're interested. Yeah, something you'll hear a lot is in some some Marxists will say, like, instead of diverse oppressors, we want a world without oppressors. I think with that, we can kind of move on to our, our last segment. This is uh, definitely going to be our longest podcast today, but I think that just reflects how how interesting and how diverse and in-depth the literature uh, and racial can canon of racial philosophy really is. Uh, and so um, race is such an important issue that I think that all three of our prior episodes uh, can be reflected in what is happening right now. So in our first episode, we discussed conflicts between democracy and authoritarianism and whether one should override the other in certain instances. And I think you've seen a similar response in the current day where uh, elements of the military and very brutal police tactics have been brought out in response to the protests. And I think it raises a similar question of whether in certain scenarios, um, the, the power of the state can be brought out in full force, even in a non-democratic form, uh, when the circumstances justify it. Our second episode talks about underlying distrust in institutions. If you're interested in learning more kind of how institutions filter our epistemology and when that is good, and one that is bad and how to recognize the difference, you should check out our second podcast. It really kind of gives you an overview of the relationship between power and knowledge. Yeah, and our third episode about effective altruism and utilitarianism, I think has a lot of interesting uh, connotations in regards to like modern race theory, especially. A, a big component of the effective altruist movement is a consensus that resources are best spent abroad in terms of fighting global suffering, especially global poverty. Uh, I forget the specific articles about this, but there's kind of been a wide consensus for a while that because the United States is comparatively extremely privileged in their economic status and the general well-being of their citizens, that they're, that it is far, far more ethical to spend dollars elsewhere. And so I think this creates a very large moral quandary for uh, those who consider themselves progressive effective altruists, where there are now movements in the states like bail relief organizations that uh, urgently require monetary resources in order to significantly improve the lives of those who were arrested as part of protests unjustly. Um, but then a, a traditional effective altruist response would be that even if your dollars could be spent there, it is more ethical to spend them saving the lives of like several children uh, through malaria uh, prevention organizations or whatever. And I definitely think that um, there isn't kind of like a wide consensus on the effective altruist movement. Uh, on that now, but I think it's certainly at least a interesting criticism of the kind of like kill to save mentality that utilitarianism and the effective altruists generally uh, endorse. And as a kind of an ending note, we've been awfully uh, US centric in our discussions here, and there's a really rich uh, 
strain. Uh, there are tons of different elements of racial philosophy across the globe that you might look into. I just th I think that there are a lot of different perspectives at play here. And the fact that it's not just limited to the U.S., but really global kind of kind of shows what's beyond what we've covered in this podcast. We've also been limited in our discussion in terms of mostly talking about the history of black relations in the United States, uh, which I hope it is clear as to not say that the that the that other race relations are not important. Those of Asian folk, of Native folk, whatever. There's limited time in a day. Uh, we focus to talk about this issue because it's uh, pressing socially and because we think a lot of you probably have questions about um, how philosophy relates to the modern movements, which is not to say that we won't talk about these other issues some other time. So if you like this podcast, then please give it a thumbs up. Please refer to your friends. Um, if you have any ideas for future podcasts, email us at parkerphilosophyclub at gmail.com. Uh, if you're interested in showing up, uh, being a part of the podcast as a guest, uh, please mention that we're always looking forward to new discussions. Uh, and thank you for listening.